Well, let us open our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 21. We are looking at verses 37 through chapter 22, verse 21. It's a long portion. So we're going to read it as we go. Uh, One of the most difficult things for a first century Jew to understand if not the most difficult thing to understand, was that with the coming of Jesus into the world and through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, the world no longer functioned as it had up until that point in human history. The Jews did not understand that with the advent of God in the flesh, the old order of things had passed away, and a new order had come. As one biblical scholar indicated, up until that point, the Jewish world, just like the rest of the world of antiquity, was trapped in the binaries of clean and unclean, pure, impure, Sacred, profane. But even more ingrained was the central binary of Jew-Gentile. That was the Jewish world. But Paul came and shook everything upside down, saying things like, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, But Christ is all and in all. This was a complete paradigm shift for the Jewish mind. What you have thought for your entire life, Paul says, Jesus came to undo definitively, permanently, and gloriously. How and what's the proof? Well, he not only died for the sins of his people, but he rose again from the dead. Something new, completely new, has come into the world. And with the resurrection of Jesus, something else also came. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, the new has come because the last Adam, meaning Christ, became a life-giving spirit. The new came at Pentecost. Now in Christ, everyone is welcomed into the life and blessings of God because the Holy Spirit has come. Therefore, we no longer see anyone through fleshly categories like clean, unclean, pure, impure, sacred, profane. Now the Holy Spirit is here. Things have changed. We are now living in resurrection reality, following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus who rose from the dead first. But the first century struggle was that many of the Jews wanted to remain in the old order of the world. They loved the fleshly division of Jew, Gentile, clean, unclean, sacred, profane, so much so that it became for them a source of slavery and hatred. 
what was meant to be for good became a source of hatred. Jesus came, and along with his disciples, he began to teach that those divisions were gone for good. How? Like this, with the coming of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit, three fundamental change have taken place. Three fundamental change, changes have taken place. The people of God are now global, no longer confined to one ethnicity. Jew and Gentile distinctions are gone. The law of God is now a matter of love, no longer of ceremonies and regulations. Clean, unclean distinctions are gone. And the temple of God is now believers in Jesus in whom the Spirit dwells, no longer the building in Jerusalem. Sacred, profane distinctions, gone. Hence the accusation, you remember the accusation against Paul in chapter 21, verse 28? What was he teaching according to the Jews? This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against what? The people, the law, and the place. This place, the temple. In other words, Paul is anti-Jew, anti-Moses, anti-temple. He is an apostate. But he wasn't. Instead, Paul preached Jesus as the fulfillment of all these things. Because the risen Jesus sent the Spirit. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we live in a spiritual reality now. We are not subject to fleshly divisions and categories. But the Jews rejected this newness. They saw it as a grotesque disruption to their way of life, their understanding of the world and of themselves. So what did they do? They sought to kill the messenger. And that's where we left off last week. They were beating Paul to death. You remember right outside the temple premises. But the Roman tribune, the Bible says, a man with great power came and he heard about the commotion and it stopped it. In verses 37 through 40 of chapter 21, Paul gets a short break from the brutal beating. But interestingly, rather than asking the tribune to protect him, he sees this as an opportunity to speak yet a little more. At some point, you have to ask, Paul, haven't you had enough? Clearly, Paul saw his message more important than his own safety. But before he gets to his speech, he has to ask permission to do so. And of course, there was confusion already as to who Paul was. Somehow, the tribune thought that Paul was an Egyptian insurrectionist who had led a rebellion not very long ago. We don't know with certainty where this idea came from, but it was probably slander maybe created by the Jewish community to make Paul look even worse before the Roman authorities. In any case, Paul corrects that misinformation. He tells the Roman tribune that he's born, he's a Jew born in the prominent city of Tarsus and that he would like to speak to his countrymen, the Jews. Given the tribune's desire to know the facts behind the commotion, he gladly allowed Paul to make his defense. 
Now Paul is protected, and the mobs cannot get to him. In chapter 21, verse 40, the Bible says that Paul motioned with his hands, indicating to the crowds that he was, has something to say. He wants to speak, and so there was silence. Now we are ready to hear Paul's first defense speech, also known as an apology. That is the Greek word, is an apologia. He is going to defend himself before the Jewish crowds that are seeking to kill him. So in order to help you get the most out of this section, I will divide it into four smaller sections, which I'll present to you in the form of summary words. And the first part of his speech could be summarized with these three words. I love you. I love you. This is the first thing that Paul tells the people. In chapter 22, verse 1, Paul begins his speech by saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense or apology that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Let me just make sure that we know this. Paul's central motive for action and speech was love. Paul's central motive for action and speech was love. Even though they were trying to kill him, Paul kills his own fear and the idol of safety and security in order to speak to them about the hope of Jesus. And he even refers to them as brothers and fathers. Paul loved them. How is that possible? How can Paul love the people that were seeking to kill him, to do him harm? How is that possible? Once again, Paul was living the resurrection life. Paul was living in a new reality inaugurated by Jesus and the spirits. You see, the Jews were still slaves to their flesh. Therefore, they gave full vent to their anger, their jealousy, their envy, their strife, their hatred, also known as the works of the flesh. Paul, on the other hand, was walking in the freedom of the spirit. He put away all those vices. And brothers and sisters, let me remind you of this great truth that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and the same spirit that dwelt in Paul is the spirit that raised us up together with Christ and now dwells within us. You and I no longer have to live in accordance with the flesh, as slaves to the flesh, we can actually put to death what is earthly, fleshly in us. We can put to death, because we are in the Spirit, we can put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying, etc., etc. We are free in the Spirit of Christ, which means we are free to fulfill the law truly. How? Through love. Through love, like Paul did, for love is the fulfilling of the law. Romans 13, verse 10. 
Did you know that love, love is the most powerful force in the entire universe? How do I know this? Well, because God is the most powerful being in the universe, and God is what? Love. God is love. The coming of Jesus into the world was the coming of love into the world in human flesh. Jesus was love incarnate. And he did so. He became a man in order to create a new humanity called the church, which is now set apart, marked by love. That's who we are. We are a people of love. And Jesus accomplished this creation of a new humanity marked by love by doing what? By condemning the flesh. Upon the cross, he condemned human flesh with all its evils, passions, and weaknesses by taking upon himself the penalty for the sins committed by millions upon billions upon billions of fleshly people like you and like me, beginning with the Jews. So Paul was a man free to love because he walked in the spirit, not the flesh. But as we know, that was not always the case. And so Paul recognizes this publicly in his first defense speech. Immediately after saying to them, I love you, he moves into the next part of his speech and he says the following, I was blind. I was blind. Paul, much like the Jews who are now attacking him, once lived in the flesh. He wasn't always free. Once in his flesh, Saul of Tarsus was in bondage to the weakness, the violence, the passions of the old self. And here are some of the things that his flesh used to love. First, his race. In verse 3, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Remember, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, born in a Gentile city, but of the very seed of Benjamin. He was a true Jew. And once in his life, Saul attributed great gain to that fact, to his race. His race. I wish I could say the same thing about being Chilean. Not a whole lot to say there. Second, his education. Also in verse 3. He says, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Gamaliel, of course, was a well-known, highly respected scholar of the law. He was a Pharisee. So respected was Gamaliel that in Acts chapter 5, he is the one who convinced the Sanhedrin to release the apostles from prison. And now Paul brings up his name again as the one who taught him how to understand the Jewish way, the way of Moses. Paul is basically saying to his audience, you accuse me of not knowing the law. But I studied with the best teacher in all of Israel. I know what I'm talking about, Paul says. I understand what I'm saying. And third, 
The third thing that his flesh loved was his zeal for God. As he says at the end of verse 3, and notice how his zeal for God was manifested in verse 4. I persecuted this way, or Jesus and his followers, to the death, binding them and delivering them to prison, both men and women. Why could he do that? Of course, he could do that because of what we read in verse 5. The Sanhedrin itself, the highest court of Israel, gave him permission to do so through letters that approved his hateful actions. And so Paul is reminding them of his former life. And with that statement in verse 5, he is bringing his audience into the narrative. This is all well known to the Jews in Jerusalem. They all knew Paul as that man, Saul, the fierce lover and defender of God's law. So why is Paul saying all of this? Well, Paul wants to convey a very important point. He knows that he's speaking to the right audience. Everything he's saying about his race, his education, his zeal is meant to elicit a profound reaction for the peop people listening to him at that moment outside of the temple in Jerusalem, all that Paul had mentioned, his education, his race, his zeal, all of that was great gain. That's why Paul himself, after giving us his resume in Phil Philippians chapter 3, very similar to this one, he says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, it is essentially a copy of what he says here, it used to be great gain. And he knows his audience, the Jewish people, they are thinking, yes, Paul, you had it all. That's the stuff we live for, Paul. Paul, you were rich. We know what could possibly make you commit social and religious suicide, Paul. You see, Paul is setting up a contrast. A contrast that will hit his audience right between the eyes. Because he's about to tell them that they are all blind. And at the heart of their blindness was not primarily the stuff they loved as much as it was manifested in the one they hated. You see, the greatest, the absolute greatest work of the flesh, the absolute greatest work of the flesh is the rejection of the one who offers you life in the Spirit. But that's exactly what they had done. Just a few decades prior to these events in the book of Acts, the Jews had condemned a man named Jesus. They hated him, they lied about him, and they took God's law and used it against him. In the biggest cosmic irony of all, they used the word of God against the word incarnate. And so they put him on a cross not without torturing him first. And they said, his blood be upon us. But Jesus said, Father, their transgressions be upon me. Jesus died under the penalty that the Jews themselves deserved. He took their place. The Jews were slaves to their flesh, so Jesus came to condemn that flesh in his own body on that tree. And so he did flesh Flesh was killed on that cross in the body of Jesus, our Lord. But then, 
The Bible says the greatest news in history that he was raised from the dead. Why was Jesus raised from the dead? Well, here is the short answer. Because through his resurrection, the Father made the strongest, the strongest and loudest declaration ever made about any man in all of human history. What was that declaration? My son is righteous. The father, you see, the father allowed the condemnation of his son. It was his will to crush him, the Bible says in Isaiah. It was the will of the father to crush his own son under false accusations from Jews and Romans. But then... God raised Jesus from the dead in order to do what? To reverse. Think about this. Jesus was raised from the dead in order to reverse all the charges against Jesus and throw them back at his accusers. His resurrection was both the vindication of his holy name and a judgment on his accusers. So those seeking to kill Paul at this moment outside of the temple, listening to his words, they knew the following. They knew that to believe in the resurrection of Jesus is to admit guilt. For they said, we kill the one God raised. If Paul is correct, the Jews thought, then we literally kill God's son, the righteous one. But the Jews were blind. They could not see. Neither could Saul of Tarsus at some point in his life. Until Jesus, risen from the dead, intervened directly in his life. And so we enter into the third section of his speech, which we can sum up with the words, I was undone. So first, I love you. First, I love you. Second, I was blind. Third, I was undone. Notice the transition between verse 5 and 6. In verse 5, at the end, it says, I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Verse 6, as I was on my way, and drew near Damascus. That transition in verses 5 and 6 is important for it establishes the fact that Paul's sudden change did not come from within himself. That's important to establish. Paul is seeking to remove all doubts as to the truth that something happened to him on the road to Damascus. He was acted upon. It wasn't his initiative. He wasn't about to change his mind about the Christians or Jesus. He was acted upon. It happened to him. He was not having second thoughts. He was still breathing violence and murder. So he wants to establish that fact between verses 5 and 6. Listen, I was still committed to my hatred. I was still committed to the Jewish way. I was still committed to punishing the Christians until... Verse 6, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. 
Verse 7, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? Seems like you already knew the answer, huh? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told. You will be told. You're not calling the shots anymore, Paul. You will be told what to do. You will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. This is the undoing of Saul of Tarsus. Interesting mention of the light, by the way. Not just a light, but a great light. Light is often in the Bible associated with God's perfect moral character, his holiness, his holiness. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God has a way of undoing men by showing them what true holiness looks like. Up until that moment in his life, based on his extraordinary resume, of course, Saul of Tarsus thought he was something special. Saul thought he was something to behold, an exemplary specimen of religious life, holder of the greatest zeal, the most impressive resume, the most impeccable background. But the moment Saul saw the light, he knew he was nothing. He knew he was Nothing. He knew it was all dirt. His righteousness was nothing but a filthy rag. Jesus, the one who rose from the dead, showed Paul what true holiness looks like. It is a force that can throw a self-righteous man out of his horse and make him blind. This was undoubtedly the fastest I surrender all in the history of the church. Saul the proud became like Isaiah the prophet. Woe is me. Just imagine. Here's a man who is boasting for most of his life that he's righteous. And all of a sudden... He's in the ground, and he's probably thinking to himself the words of Isaiah, woe is me. You know what woe is? It's the opposite of blessed. Woe is a curse. Woe is me, for I am lost, said Paul, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. No wonder Paul wrote, but whatever gain I had. In four elements of the story, 
first, he immediately called Jesus Lord when he asked his name. Who are you, God of the universe? Right? Second, when Jesus asked, why are you persecuting me? Saul had nothing to say. Third, he immediately knew he was a man under new management by saying, what shall I do? What shall I do, Lord? And fourth, he was blinded by the light. Saul was humbled by Jesus. No wonder he went from Saul, the name of the first king of Israel, to what? Paul, which means what? Little. That's what the word Paul means. Little. From this point on, Paul is the least of the apostles. He knows he has no intrinsic right to serve Jesus at all, but by grace, he was saved. So now Paul moves into his fourth section in his speech, and you probably guessed it by now, now I see, now I see. In the great irony, Paul's physical blindness was a sign of his brand new spiritual sight. Imagine him there lying on a bed unable to do anything when just a few days prior he was a man of great significance, power, and influence. He was the protector of God's way. Now he's confined to the floor. But beginning in verse 12, two very important elements of the story take place. The two elements are a man and a message. Let's look at the man first. Verse 12, one Ananias, a devout man. Remember, Paul is still telling this to the Jewish audience. A devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. Why bring in Ananias into the story? Ananias was very important to the story, for Ananias helped Paul convey the truth that he's not the only Jew who understands what's going on. Ananias was a faithful Jew. According to the law, therefore, Paul wasn't against the Jews. Ananias was a Jew. But even more important than the man himself is his message. Look at what Ananias said in verse 14. The God of our fathers appointed you, Paul, to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Ananias, a man faithful, a faithful Jew, says to Paul, the God of our fathers appointed you. Why is that significant? It is significant because, once again, it establishes the fact that Paul's message is not contrary to the message of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of Moses. It is the same God of the Jews who is telling Paul what to say. And God does not contradict himself. It demonstrates that the Old Testament and the New are in unity and that the New is the fulfillment of the Old. 
Paul is preaching covenant theology to them. It is all intimately connected in Christ. The message of Jesus, says Paul, is not a new thing. He's the one we had expected all along. He's the righteous one. This is a highly explosive statement, by the way. The implication is huge. What Paul is telling his Jewish audience is that they are missing the entire point of their own scriptures. Jesus, Paul says, is the key to everything. Just like Jesus has said to the Jews in John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. Jesus said to the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have Life. You think you know the scriptures, but you don't because you are not doing what the scriptures were originally designed to do. And that is to lead you to the Messiah. Paul is saying the same here. If you miss the Messiah, you don't know the scriptures. And if you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the God of our fathers. But on that day, on the road to Damascus, Saul understood for the first time. So Paul, having now both his physical and spiritual eyes open, was baptized to indicate that he was now in union with the one who washed away his sins. Like the first generation of Jews who believed in Peter's message during Pentecost, Paul also was baptized confessing Jesus as Lord. Now the Jews listening to this are about to explode. At this point. But Paul adds one more thing just to guarantee the explosion. Not because he hated them, but but because he loved them. So in verse 17 through 21, Paul says that when I had returned to Jerusalem from Damascus and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. The Greek word there is ectasis, which implies a vision of sorts where his mind was transported supernaturally verse 18 and saw him Jesus saying to me make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they meaning the Jews will not accept your testimony about me of course at this point Paul thinks he knows best so he says in verse 19 Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed during the stoning of Stephen, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. What's the point of those? In other words, Lord, they probably will believe me when I tell them about you because they know me. They even trust me. To be just like one of them. They will listen to me, Lord. But Jesus says in verse 21, Go, for I will send you to the Gentiles. And that's when the Jews had had enough. When he mentioned the Gentiles, that was the end. But that was the promise made to Abraham, wasn't it? What did the father promise Abraham? In you shall all the nations be blessed. Paul, you little man, you are going to be my instrument in fulfilling the promise to Abraham. Go tell the Gentiles what you have seen and 
heard. The blessing of Abraham, the Holy Spirit has come. Go tell them, says the Lord Jesus to Paul. And what did Paul do beginning in chapter 13 of Acts? Precisely that. He went all around the world preaching Jesus to the Gentiles as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. The Gentiles can be justified by faith in Christ and receive the promised Holy Spirit. Now the people of God is global, not ethnic. The law of God is fulfilled through love, not regulations. And the temple of God is those in whom the Spirit dwells, not a building. So the audience listened to Paul. But things are about to change once again. We will see this next Sunday. For now, please take these few lessons with you. Just a few will make this quick. Paul, remember, is in, on trial because of his conviction that Jesus rose from the dead. This is all about the resurrection. And so here is a few takeaways for us. Because Jesus lives, because he lives, we can experience true change. Because Jesus lives, we can experience true change. Granted, Paul saw the resurrected Christ because he was an apostle. In that sense, his experience is unrepeatable. But the risen Christ still comes to us with the same power, though invisibly, by his word and spirit. Therefore, you and I, here's the good news, you and I can put to death what is earthly in us by the same power that transformed Saul into Paul. Circumstances have changed, but the power has not. Like Paul, we are also in the process of being undone and rebuilt one day at a time. We are being undone and rebuilt one day at a time. The flesh is slowly but surely losing its grip on us while the Spirit is progressively taking over every area of our lives. So continue, brother and sister, continue to die to self daily. For we are in the Spirit, no longer in the flesh. Mortify your sin. For the one who killed sin on the cross now lives in you by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Press on, my dear friend. Because before Christ, Paul had said, my flesh is my gain. After Christ, Paul could say, to die is Gain Only a man living the resurrection life could make such statement. Sin will have no dominion over you. Number two, because he lives, we can preach amazing grace. Because he lives, we can preach amazing grace. That sweet sound is only possible because Jesus lives. Therefore, let us preach it with confidence, brothers and sisters. I believe with all my heart that grace will win in our lives and in the world. And number three, because he lives, we, like Paul, can love those who hate. We can love those who hate. As I said at the beginning, Jesus came lived, died, rose again, and poured out his spirit in order to create a new humanity 
known as the church. A people cleansed of their sins by his blood with a clear conscience free from the burden of sin. But that's not all. Jesus said in John chapter 14 verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. While the Father and the Son have made their home within us by the Holy Spirit. So let us not be like the world. Let us not be like the world. Instead, let us love. Let us love. Let us love one another. And even those who hate us, as Paul did. He loved because he lived the resurrection life. He walked in the spirit, not the flesh. So let us love, brothers and sisters. For only love binds everything together in perfect harmony. And by this, the world will know that we are his disciples, that we love one another. There is no other way. Let us pray together this morning. Our Father, we are so grateful for the example of the Apostle Paul. And it simply reminds us of how short we fall. And so as the invitation goes, help us to be imitators of the examples that we see in godly men of Scripture. And above all things, Father, help us by your Spirit to be a people who live in light of the resurrection, who walk by the Spirit, who do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For by this the world will know that we are new creations. So, Father, may your Spirit of love be among us and in us. Help us to love one another and to love those who are lost so that through our love they will see that Christ has indeed made all things new. And this we pray in the precious, glorious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.